a session entitled Dark Money versus Donor Disclosure. I'm Dave Leventhal. I'm the senior political reporter with the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit investigative newsroom in Washington, D.C. And it's great to be back in Texas, having spent seven years at the Dallas Morning News covering politics back last decade. We've got a great panel uh, on a fantastic and fascinating and ever-changing topic of quote-unquote dark money, which I know some of you love and some of you hate and think is uh, pejorative, but we'll get into that in full uh, in just a little bit. But to introduce our panelists, uh, starting uh, at, uh, well, we'll just start in order here by alphabetical. Uh, Bill Allison is the editorial director of the Sunlight Foundation. He's an investigative journalist and editor for the nonprofit uh, media wing of that. He's worked at the Center for Public Integrity, where I work uh, back in the day. And he was the uh, co-author of The Cheating of America, also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Buying of the President, 2004, and previously, Allison had worked eight years at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Andrew Grossman, sitting next to Bill in the middle, is an associate at uh, Baker Hosteller in Washington, D.C., their Washington, D.C. office. He specializes in litigation and constitutional law. He's filed numerous briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court and the Federal Courts of Appeals, and he's frequently uh, advising members of Congress on complex legal and policy issues uh, money and politics being among them. Uh, Grossman's testified before the Congressional Judici- Judiciary Committees on issues of constitutional law, and he's a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, Chase Untermeyer is a former U.S. ambassador to Qatar and uh, a current Texas Ethics Commissioner. Uh, he's an international business consultant. Uh, he's previously served in the Texas House and as the director of the uh, of presidential personnel to President George H.W. Bush. Uh, also, former director of Voice of America, and uh, he currently serves, again, on the Texas Ethics Commission and also on the Council of Foreign Relations. Good to have you with us. State Representative Byron Cook, Republican from Corsicana, and he was first elected to serve his district, which is District 8 in the Texas House, in 2002. He also sits on the House's Calendar Committee, and uh, he has recently served on the Sunset Advisory Commission which reviews the efficiency of state agencies. Previously, he served uh, as chairman of the Environmental Regulations and Civil Practices Committees. And then finally, David Keating, to my left. He's the president of the Center for Competitive Politics, and uh, it's an organization dedicated to uh, protecting free speech rights through litigation and education. Uh, He founded an organization uh, called speechnow.org in 2007, He previously served as the executive director for the Club for Growth and as executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. And uh, I must editorialize to say that uh, if we didn't have speechnow.org versus the Federal Election Commission, a federal uh, courts case, 2010, we might not have super PACs these days. So if you like super PACs, you can thank David Keating for it. Or blame me. (laughs) Well, I... It goes without saying that if you turn on your television uh, during this election cycle, if you flip on your radio, go to your favorite social media site, you've probably seen a political advertisement, you've seen a political message. Uh, If you live in a swing state uh, for the U.S. Senate uh, that might be in play, like Georgia or Kentucky or North Carolina, you're getting absolutely inundated with political messaging, which is really at the heart of this so-called dark money issue. Uh, In your opinion, in a single word, or a single phrase, if you will, uh, give me a word that defines the state of play as far as campaign money and electioneering is uh, concerned in 2014. And, and we'll start uh, with the good ambassador. 
that's the toughest duty of all here. Uh, I suppose to choose one word, I would say searching. Uh, this is still a frontier of the law and of regulation. It is uh, one that uh, I think people come at with passion, but uh, with a great deal of questioning. So I would use that word. Bill. I would say it's unprecedented how same as it ever was. Um, I think we're seeing exactly the same things we've seen in the past, and um, we still don't have regulations that can deal with it. Andrew? Um, I would say the regulational, uh, the, the regulation uh, as it exists now is somewhat Byzantine. Um, you know, as regulators attempt to squeeze out uh, disclosure and regulation of that last couple percentage of uh, speech and expenditures that uh, they've been trying to reach, uh, the regulations become much and much uh, more complicated. And it's been very difficult for smaller grassroots groups uh, to comply and to uh, carry out their legal obligations uh, just to uh, engage in political speech. Representative? As somebody that's been elected to office, all I can say is all they had to do is uh, spell your name right. <laughs> and that's really where we've gotten to in today's time. Well, I'd say we have more speech than ever, and that's good. More speech means more information for voters, and we've also seen a high correlation where there's more information and more controversy. We see more turnout. So people that are concerned about turnout, more speech is good for that too. Well, if that doesn't give you the philosophical spectrum that we have on this panel, I don't know what will. Uh, but, Andrew, let me jump to you. You, you said Byzantine. I, I guess one thing that uh, I've been taken by uh, during this election cycle and definitely going back to, to 2012 is all the different types of rules and regulations that exist. Uh, there are 101, it seems, different types of political organizations or quasi-political organizations. Uh, and, and for an average voter, you talk to them, and they're about as confused as confused could be. Uh, do you think right now that there is something that needs to be done, uh, perhaps the IRS, which uh, is involved in this, perhaps the Federal Election Commission, uh, to make this process of funding campaigns and making sure that one can run a, a robust uh, campaign during a, an election season less Byzantine? Well, I mean, the problem is, and, and you know, unfortunately, I, I, don't, I, I fear that at the moment that's not really the direction things are going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when people talk about dark money, uh, in general, what they're talking about is something that amounts to three or four, maybe five percent of total campaign-related expenditures. And there's been this struggle in recent years, since Citizens United particularly, to try and reach and regulate and enforce disclosure on that, that last couple percentage points of, uh, of campaign-related expenditures. Um, and uh, it, the result has been just an ever more complicated legal environment that has, wields uh, lots of collateral damage on smaller grassroots groups that don't have the capabilities um, and can't shoulder the burden of complying with these types of regulatory regimes. Um, so to get that last marginal little bit of disclosure, um, you wind up with a much more complicated, more Byzantine system. Well, Bill, Dave, did, if I could add no, something. Yep. I, I used to work in the tax field. And to give people an idea of how bad the campaign finance laws are, the tax code is a model of simplicity and clarity compared to the campaign finance law. And I, we laugh, but that's a real problem. We have freedom of speech in this country, yet if people want to speak out about their government, especially during election season, you have to hire a lawyer to do it. Or you're going, I guarantee you, you're going to trip into some rule. That's a situation that has to be fixed. Well, at the federal level, and, and Bill will get to you, uh, there, there's this notion of primary purpose. You have nonprofit organizations that have, uh, in the 
several years since the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision, 2010 Supreme Court 5 to 4 decision. Uh, effectively, nonprofit organizations of a certain flavor, not to get too deep in the weeds, but 501c4 organizations, social welfare groups, trade organizations, uh, 501c6s, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would be a notable one. Uh, they've engaged in direct advocacy of candidates, either for and against, but yet they don't have to disclose their donors, hence this notion of, of dark money. Uh, do you buy that, that, uh, that the rules and regulations, uh, or, or that this really only applies to a, a small set of nonprofits, or, or is there something else going on here that, that should be addressed from a, either a legal or a, a regulatory standpoint? Well, you know, I think I begin by disputing the notion that we're only talking about 4 or 5% of total campaign spending. I mean, um, what we, have a, we track political spending through, uh, that is disclosed to the FCC, uh, a lot of nonprofits are spending money that is completely under the radar. They're running what are known as electioneering uh, ads, where they are mentioning federal candidates in unflattering ways, but not using that um, that express advocacy language. Uh, they started, you know, right after. I mean, I think we started seeing the first ads after the 2012 campaign in December, going after different candidates, including uh, Bob McDonald of the uh, Virginia governor, uh, who's uh, now. Um, uh, been convicted, but you know, but there's an ad in Iowa attacking him as a you know as a potential candidate. So there's a huge amount of spending that's under the radar that's completely undisclosed at this point. Um, that you know you can only find out through going through local television stations, local radio stations. I think it's a much bigger problem than four or five percent, and there is no mechanism right now to deal with this. So so you know um, to get to the primary purpose uh, question. Um, I, you know, I kind of, I'm just a little old-fashioned. I think if you're spending on elections and you're trying to influence voters, the public should know where the money is coming from. And I think that's like uh, a, a hold, hold standard. On. This is a standard that's standardless. What you just talked about is totally standardless. Um, what Andrew said is the right number. If we're talking about spending for against a candidate, the numbers are clear. Right now, it is under 4%. It's actually less as a proportion of total spending on candidates than it was in 2012. But what you're talking about is advocacy of any issue on anything that happens to be on radio or TV. That's a much different question. I'm saying that mention of a candidate. Mention of a candidate, but all members of Congress are candidates. So whenever right. Congress votes on a bill, you're talking about if it as if it's influencing an election. And that is a kind of standard that's standardless. And one of the reasons why there was so much debate when these laws were first passed, when the first laws were passed on federal campaign financing, the Nixon Justice Department went after a group called the Committee for Impeachment, okay? And it became a major case. The Nixon Justice Department wanted to criminally go after these people because they thought they were trying to influence the election. What they were trying to do is get Nixon impeached. But then the same theory was used to go after the New York Times and the ACLU because they were running hard-hitting ads on desegregation, and Nixon was fighting it. And under your standards, all the people that funded the ACLU ads and were supporting desegregation, you're saying should be disclosed. Bill, let's get your response, and, and then I want to move on quickly to the Texas level, which plays directly into this uh, at, at a different level. I think it's how you write the regulation, but you know, 
to give you, you know, uh, in 2009, when Democrats were trying to pass the health care law, there were emails that the House Commerce and Energy Committee surfaced with, uh, and this was before Citizens United, with uh, there were senators that were reluctant to go along with a pharmaceutical deal uh, that was in part of the health care reform package. And the, the pharmaceutical industry was saying, basically, we will pay for advertisements in those senator states to tout their support of this bill or support of health care. And we'll, write the, we'll do these glowing ads for them and support them if they will come along with this measure. You know, that was basically the, the tit for tat. So you can't say that all of the spending is somehow benign or entirely issue-oriented. Um, you know, there are examples. Of, there are other examples of this as well. Groups that have spent money um, on supposedly independent speech, where they're really looking for a payoff. And you know, do you? You know, I think that that's really the question. Of, um, or that's of concern to the public is, you know, how is this money being used? How is it influencing people? You know, the American Chemistry Council ran ads in states of, I think, 14 House members touting them with these glowing, you know, wonderful things about what are, you know, tell uh, Congressman Fred Upton he's doing a heck of a job and, you know, pictures of farms and everything else. And it's because the, at the time they were pushing a bill through the House Energy or House Commerce Committee uh, that would, um, you know, it was called like the, I think, the Polluter's Paradise Bill. I mean, so, so there is a tit for tat kind of going on here. It's not just, you know, and, I, and where you draw the line, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to say that, but I think that there is a huge amount of influence that is done through these ads that never shows up in federal election commission filings, that never shows up uh, in, uh, it's never disclosed to the public, and it should be, it has to be. Ambassador uh, Untermeyer, um, the Texas Ethics Commission, and correct me if I'm wrong, is considering right now a, a regulation that would effectively set a 25% number or assign a 25% number to the idea of a, a primary purpose, uh, it, it, politics being a primary purpose for a nonprofit organization that wants to engage in politics. Uh, and, and if it's above 25%, then uh, they're going to have to disclose uh, much more about their, uh, their, their donors than, than they would have to otherwise. Uh, is, that a, is that a correct, more or less, uh, uh, description of it? Uh, the Texas law says that uh, one is a political committee or has the function of a political committee if a principal purpose is political. Now, that was not defined in law. Our ethics commission has put out for co public comment a proposed rule that says a principal purpose is uh, no less than 25%. Uh, we'll no doubt get a lot of comment uh, <laughs> as to what that number should be, but that's our effort is to try to put some definition to that uh, rather vague standard. It is different from the federal standard, which uh, strikes me as one presuming a much uh, higher percentage than that, even uh, more than 50%. Well, the IRS right now is considering, and in, in, uh, 2015 is probably the earliest that they're going to get to this, uh, doing something similar to that uh, in, in defining, uh, which it doesn't uh, in, in hard numbers have right now, what exactly the primary purpose is. Uh, whether it's at the state level, whether it's at the federal level, what, in your opinion, is the magic number, if there is a magic number, for defining primary purpose? Uh, it's what I call verbal math. That is, if it were the primary purpose, then it would seem to me that would be 50% plus. Uh, but we're, that's not the Texas standard. It is a principal purpose, which suggests something below 50%. So the question is, what is the range between de minimis when nobody would uh, believe that that small amount of spending uh, is a primary purpose of the entity up to 50%. And 
our commission has put out for comment at 25%. It may be 30, it may be some other fraction. Uh, but it will certainly be less than 50%. And, and is there a number that you like, uh, that, that if, you, uh, if you had to, to say it yourself, what, uh, what you would put uh, on paper? Uh, something in the 20, uh, 20 to 25% range strikes me as uh, defensible. Uh, but, you know, uh, this is all what a court eventually is going to say it is. And uh, we'll, we'll pick some number, and then we'll see a few years later whether courts agree. Well, Representative Cook, uh, this, this is obviously an issue close to your committee and uh, the work that you've been doing. Is there a magic number that you would like to see? No, but I think, uh, I think without making this too complex, the reality of the fact is either you think that we should uh, have transparency with respect to money that's going into the election process, or we shouldn't. And I think that's what it boils down to. And, and recognize, uh, is there a potential corrupting influence with respect to dark money? And there is no question that there is. All, all anybody has to do is look at what happened in Utah. And in Utah, uh, the uh, lieutenant governor, uh, I mean, excuse me, the uh, 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 Attorney General and his predecessor set up a number, a labyrinth of 501c4s for the purpose of uh, electing an individual named Swallow. He was actually elected using the dark money. And, and I would challenge everybody here to go read uh, what the, uh, the uh, select committee in Utah, the work that they did on that. There's no question they influenced the outcome. Mr. Swallow was elected using dark money. Now, I fast forward to where we are today. Uh, he had to be removed from office. The fellow that he uh, beat was a fellow named Reyes, who is now, was appointed by the governor, and is now the uh, uh, attorney general. So we know the dark money is a corrupting influence. Uh, you can talk about the percentage uh, of, of what it represents today, and it's whatever it may be. But here's, here's the reality of the fact. If we don't address dark money... Uh, it's my prediction that more and more uh, 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 people will use that vehicle, more candidates, and down the road there will be no transparency because elections will be, uh, uh, will be funded by dark money. I would suggest that that would be uh, a, a terrible consequence and result uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the public. So, Andrew, what, why isn't dark money harmful? to the body politic, to the political process. Is there a specific reason why, in your opinion, it would be okay if you have $10, $100, uh, $10 million, for you to give that money to a nonprofit organization, which in turn directly advocates for and against a, a politician or does something that, that comes close up to that line? Sure. Well, I, I think the representative is confusing a couple different issues. Um, you know, when you're talking about contributions, and that's something that's typically uh, understood to include coordinated expenditures by, by otherwise independent groups, third-party groups, those are counted as contributions, and those are subject to reporting, disclosure, limitations, usually uh, corporate bans, and so on. Um, so when you're talking about this sort of underhanded um, direct campaign advocacy that's working with a campaign where there's actually money that's effectively being controlled by or going to a particular candidate, that's all subject to pretty much, I mean, I think every state's uh, regulatory regimes, as well as at the federal level. That's very heavily regulated. Uh, what we're really talking about here, though, are independent expenditures. In other words, where there is no relationship with the campaign, where there is no relationship with the candidates, there's no coordination. That's a very different area. 
Because what you're talking about in this instance is independent speech, people coming together and deciding to speak. And sometimes that may be political in nature and sometimes it may not be. But the Supreme Court's uh, you know, held again and again that's subject to the highest protections under the First Amendment. So how independent is it, though, if somebody's mom or dad or banker or a close, close political ally is giving money to one of these nonprofit groups, which is effectively uh, acting in, in the same way that a campaign would, either through television advertisements, uh, even grassroots efforts. Uh, we've seen examples in 2014 of where this occurs. Is it prevailing? Probably not. But at the same time, Andrew or David, uh, what are there pitfalls when you get well, into such a familial relationship with the people who are fueling those nonprofit groups that are in turn supporting a candidate uh, or, or bashing a candidate for that matter? See, I, you know, what, one problem is that you know the, these the regulatory systems that we currently have really do address a lot of these concerns already. So when you're talking about somebody who may be a relative or or, or a, a you know someone someone who has some relationship with the candidate and is making a donation for political purposes to a third party group to engage in political activities. Uh, in most states, that's subject to disclosure. Under the federal system, that's subject to disclosure. But it never um, happens. That's no, not it, true. It, it happens, happens all, all the time. time. You, can go right? to the, you can go to the Texas Ethics Commission's website, and you can actually look at a number of those types of uh, contributions. Um, it, it's, it's a perfectly routine part of our disclosure regime today. So, it, you know, people come up with these hypotheticals um, you know, that involve all kinds of sub- subterfuge and, uh, and, and underhandedness. But I, I, think what, I think what frequently is lost is that a lot of this is already covered. We have a, a campaign finance regime that, uh, you know, really has taken into account a lot of these types of situations. You know, when, when people are talking, I think, about dark money, what they're talking about is a much more specific, narrow problem than that. Well, that's part of the problem is a lot of the people that favor more regulation of speech, they just talk about dark money and they don't define what it is. So anything they don't like, they just call it dark money. But if you look at the actual statistics where money is being spent for or against a candidate, all the spending at the federal level is currently disclosed, 100%. There is no dark money on spending. Now, in terms of groups that do the spending, as Andrew referred to earlier, it's 96.1% of the donations toward that 100% are disclosed. Now, the, the remaining is from groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But we know what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is. We know what most of these groups are, the big, the big ones that are spending the money. We know what, they, what it is. Now, if someone gave the U.S. Chamber money to run that ad, the law requires that that be disclosed. But if someone just gives general support for the organization, there's no requirement, nor should there be any requirement, in my view, that those donors be disclosed. Because then you would have a situation where if a group, say, ran $10 million of ads but had a $200 million budget, you'd have $200 million of disclosed donors for $10 million in ads. So people would be associated with ads that didn't fund them, had no bearing or relationship to those ads at all. So this whole dark money issue, part of the problem is it's dark about what they're talking about when they're talking about dark money. Representative Truthfully, you know, once again, you could look to what Utah's done. And basically, if you're donating to the 501c4 and, and you, you, don't, uh, you don't want your money going to a political campaigns, you check a box and then you're not disclosed. But if you want it going... To, uh, political campaigning, 
then, then, then it is disclosed. Once again, fundamentally, you either believe that, that uh, people have a right to know who is behind the campaign, uh, or you don't. Uh, and nobody disputes your First Amendment. But, uh, but transparency, and you talk about uh, court ruling, the Supreme Court has uh, time and time again uh, uh, shown their support to transparency, and I think it's fundamental. Uh, if you if we don't once again I can promise you the the uh, in the future and I'm dressing here in Texas but in in the future you'll see more and more 501c4 set up so people don't have to disclose you're going to see a lot of you, you have the potential for uh, you know foreign groups and very highly specialized uh, uh, groups that will 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 enter this because they don't have to disclose. And I think that is uh, but that is a what threat are we to democracy. About entering what? If the money is being given for an ad for or against a candidate, the law at the federal level and many state law. I can't talk to Texas's law, but the understanding is if it's given for an ad for or against a candidate, that has to be disclosed today. That's for express advocacy. So. You know, if people are going to break the law, that's one thing. That's and then it's a matter of enforcement. Well, Bill, uh, that's, not, yeah, that's not true. I mean, if, if a 501c4 runs an independent expenditure, vote for, vote against a candidate, they do not have to disclose their donors. It's only if they run the electioneering commi- uh, communications that that's speech about... No, if, if somebody about. gives money to a 501c4 and gives the money for the independent expenditure, that has to be disclosed. And some groups do receive money like that, and it is disclosed. Yeah. But most of the groups fund it out of their general operations. Now, you know, a better argument could be made about, well, maybe the law is not clear enough. Maybe, it's not, you know, maybe it needs to cover more in earmarking. But even so, um, today the law at the federal level is if it's given for the ads, it has to be disclosed. Well, Andrew, uh, in, in a decision back in 2010 that wasn't Citizens United, wasn't Speech Now. It was uh, called Doe versus Reed. And uh, Justice Scalia it had to do with the ballot initiatives and whether signatures should be disclosed. So we're not talking necessarily about campaign money. But he made the statement, uh, which, which is quoted as followed, uh, requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts fosters civic courage, without which democracy is due. So again, even though this is not a campaign finance issue necessarily, the spirit uh, from Justice Scalia, who of course uh, was one of the justices who ruled on Citizens United, seems to be that transparency is a good thing for politics. Um, are people who don't want to have their names disclosed when they give money for, uh, to, to a nonprofit group that in turn uses it for political purposes, are they cowards? Well, I, 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 think, I think there are two, two points in response to that. You know, first, as, as Bill explained, um, a lot of the type of, uh, you know, when you're talking about disclosure from funds from groups that are using general treasury funds uh, to, to run political ads or issue, or issue-based ads, you may be talking about donors who don't necessarily support that particular ad or that particular candidate or whatever it is in particular that's at issue. They may support a group that undertakes a variety of activities, but it doesn't mean that each individual expenditure is something that they necessarily agree with. And so attributing that to them can really lead to a lot of misinformation. Um, but as a second point, you know, it varies by the kind of speech you're talking about. You don't have to go back very far to see people suffering enormous amounts of retribution and retaliation, both official and in a private sense, uh, for engaging in political speech. Look to the civil rights era, look to the efforts to undermine the NAACP, look more recently to events in the state of Wisconsin where, um, you know, a, a federal judge has found that 
um, you know, a, a district attorney uh, basically ran a, a several-year-long retaliatory campaign uh, against supporters of Governor Scott Walker. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that can happen in a hyper-partisan, hyper-politicized environment. And so certain points of view that are controversial, that aren't supported by a majority, um, those are the kinds of points of view that can get lost when you have a mandatory across-the-board disclosure regime. Right, to take something more recent. For, I mean, gay rights, gay marriage today is a much more mainstream issue than it was five, even ten years ago. Ten years ago, can you imagine if you wanted to support a group like the Human Rights Campaign, but if you did it, your name was out in the public. Okay? Now, I submit that the Human Rights Campaign would find a lot more difficult to raise money to work on a very important issue. And we can't predict what the issues might be in the future, what might be controversial, but that's why the Supreme Court in the Buckley decision, the NAACP decision, and many other decisions has drawn a line, and I think the line the court drew is a good one, and that is disclosure is only for speech that is for or against candidates. But when it goes on the other side of the line and we're talking about issues, the types of things government is doing, the government doesn't have a right to that information. We have to keep in mind, disclosure is for us to monitor the people in the government, not for the government to monitor us as citizens about what we think the government should be doing. Ambassador, you can probably cite a, a dozen and one different uh, instances in history going back to the founding of the country where uh, very prominent uh, political actors were making uh, political statements uh, under a pseudonym. Uh, Publius. Uh, you can bring up the Federalist Papers on and on. Why is it such a bad thing if somebody wants to engage in politics, even in electioneering politics, where uh, they support a candidate or they're opposed to another candidate, and just simply not disclose who they are? Well, as I say, I mean, look at freedom of speech as a uh, as a given, but it is not necessarily in conflict with disclosure. Uh, perhaps there is some slight overlap at the margins, and those are the cases and the controversies we talk about. But for the most part, there should be no concern or anxiety on the part of someone making a political contribution or some other act of political speech involving money that uh, need put them in jeopardy. And if they are subject then to harassment, uh, retaliation, discrimination, extortion, whatever those uh, uh, terrible consequences might be, then there are laws uh, governing and protecting them uh, on those accounts. But that, that's another problem itself, because the problem is if we make the standard for disclosure, the exemption being, well, if you're going to suffer threats, harassment, or retribution, well, then it's a little late, okay? If you've already been hurt, you can't be helped. And to get, I'll give you an example that's going on today in New York State. New York State has, in my view, the most outrageous disclosure law in the country. If you simply speak out about any policy issue, even if it's not a bill in the legislature, and you spend, you have a, you spend over a certain threshold, it's not even very much money, I think it's $5,000, you have to disclose all your major donors. It, nothing about an election, nothing about a bill in the legislature, and New York requires disclosure in th that type of instance. And they wrote into the bill an exemption for groups that have suffered threats and harassment and reprisals. So only one group got an exemption. Uh, the National Abortion Rights Group uh, base chapter in New York got an exemption, but it was only for one year, and it's not clear that that will be renewed. The ACLU 
which has death threats on like a weekly or monthly basis. The person who gave an affidavit didn't even want to give his name in the affidavit because he didn't want people to know that he works at the ACLU. It, there's a whole documentation, and New York State has not, to this day, given the ACLU an exemption. You can't even get into their office in New York City. It's very, very high security because of the kinds of threats. And that's the problem with making that the standard. If you give the government the, uh, the ability to decide what the threats are, they'll just never give the exemption. Bill, is that the same, or, or Ambassador, both, uh, is that the same thing, though, as, as campaign electioneering? Well, couple of comments here. One is uh, we're talking about rather extreme and I would say uh, very, very sparse kinds of instances. And as a rule, the bulk of campaigning for not just candidates but also for issues or referenda, constitutional amendments, etc., go on without anybody's needing, uh, requiring uh, protection of any sort against retribution or fear of some kind of discrimination. And that's what concerns us is the bulk of all kinds of electioneering in America, not just for candidates, but for uh, money and uh, legal related uh, issues before the public, uh, uh, is uh, something that the rest of the public, the voting public, needs to know. And uh, I can't and won't defend New York, uh, but all I can say is that <laughs> in Texas, uh, we, we feel that as the disclosure agency, that that is on the whole a healthy thing in all of those cases. Well, to switch gears uh, just slightly, back, back in 2012, David, you and I had a conversation where, where uh, I quoted you saying this. Uh, he, he seems, and he, uh, by, uh, by he, I mean Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, uh, then running for re-election, he seems to have accepted the rules of the day and decided that if he wants to win, he's got to play by them. The political environment is moving in a deregulatory direction, and I doubt anything will change if Obama gets reelected, uh, those words seem a bit prophetic right now, in the sense that uh, President Obama has, uh, I think, by anyone's measure, not been on the cutting edge uh, of trying to change the, uh, the the system as far as campaign finance is concerned for the way that it is right now. Uh, Representative Cook, Democrats don't seem to be doing a whole lot. Republicans don't seem to be doing a whole lot. Yes, there was a, uh, a constitutional amendment floated in the Senate. Uh, that, that went down in flames uh, earlier this month, uh, but there's really not, uh, at least at the federal level, a whole lot being done one way or another to, uh, to, to change the way the rules are today, at least to regulate them more. Uh, if Democrats aren't going to do it, if Republicans aren't going to do it, who's going to do something about it? And uh, I say this noting that you are a Republican uh, who does, uh, at least to some degree, believe that the rules should be changed. Once again, I'm hoping that we take some positive steps this next session, probably along the lines of... Uh, what Utah did, we're not interested in a 501c4 uh, list of uh, members, but to the extent they engage in, in political campaigning, uh, I think we need, to, we need to have that information of those that want to give money. And, and by the way, just the, the, the folks that are giving money, it's not the small donors. Uh, what, what you're seeing is mega donors uh, that are, are contributing tens of thousands, maybe millions of dollars to these 501c4s. That's a group that, if we don't do something, will continue to get bigger and bigger because it's a, it is a vehicle for them to uh, engage in the political process anonymously. And, and once again, I don't think that's uh, healthy for uh, a, a, a free and uh, uh, vibrant uh, democratic process. Well, uh, Bill, uh, you know, Democrats are often uh, the ones who are, are railing against big money in politics and dark money. 
Uh, but at the same time, you have uh, an organization such as a, a 501c4 in its own right, uh, Patriot Majority USA, uh, which is a Democratic group. Harry Reid, who's been on a vendetta against the Koch brothers all this year. Uh, this is a group that's run by one of his uh, former close associates. Uh, have, have Democrats given up on this? Is there anyone in politics who you really think cares about uh, the, the issue of, of quote-unquote dark money? Um, you know, Democrats do benefit from it as much as Republicans do. And, you know, I, what, you know, I think that um, it's the Utah example that what is going to change the system is we're going to need, a, we're going to have to have, and we will have, a huge political scandal that will cause politicians to address this. But as long as there isn't that scandal, or until that scandal happens, um, that the public understands and gets, because that's always how we get change in politics. We got change, you know, with people delivering uh, briefcases of cash that led to, you know, the, uh, the Federal Election Commission. Um, with, uh, you know, it's it's when the public finds out about. Um, the quid pro quos um, that they get, a, that, that's when you have action. And we, we will see action because those are going on. And, you know, the problem is, what makes it hard is we don't know who all the donors are to these organizations, so it makes it much harder to track the quid pro quos. Andrew, if I could get to you uh, to follow up on that, uh, one concern that does come up uh, and, and I hear frequently is, all right, well, you've got these 501c4s or even 501c6s, uh, the notion of foreign money. Uh, that, well, if we don't know necessarily where the money is coming from, you've got these groups engaging in politics, they might get their money from China. They might get their money from uh, some rich oil baron in Saudi Arabia. Who knows? Uh, the point is, we don't know. Uh, do you feel that that is a, a valid argument uh, that somebody floats? And if not, uh, what, what would be uh, your response to it? Well, let me first say that I, I think Bill is right in a certain sense that, you know, th there really are a large number of uh, campaign finance uh, reform groups, I guess as they describe themselves, that are really just waiting to pounce on any type of large scandal or something of that nature. You know, we saw this in Virginia, for example, with the uh, bribery and corruption trial of uh, Bob McDonnell, um, which didn't, uh, so far as I'm aware, seem to have anything to do with campaign finance whatsoever. And yet there were a flurry of op-eds and TV spots and other things like that, implying that it was some type of failure uh, in Virginia's laws that led to the McDonald's scandal. scandal. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's just a, just a ready and willing, uh, you know, group of individuals who are, who are just uh, eager to take advantage of any bad thing that may happen. But the interesting thing is that we find out about these things because they're disclosed through current enforcement uh, efforts, efforts under existing law. Um, you know, as to the influence of foreign money in politics or something like that, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, there's a lot of smoke, but we just haven't seen a lot of fire, right? Um, you know, when there when there is uh, when there are large amounts of money going through some of you know through these groups, you know, I you tend to learn about it on the front page of the newspaper. It was disclosed, for example, uh, just this week that Sheldon Adelson has you know has donated a couple million dollars uh, to different groups uh, just recently uh, in the 2014 you know to to uh, part participate in uh, advocacy of different types uh, during the 2014 campaigns. It's no secret. Um, and when you see large amounts of money, they're often, you know, you, you can trace them back in that way. Uh, news organizations do that all the time. Bill's group does that quite well. Um, so, you know, there may be something there, but it's just not something I think at this point we've seen a lot of evidence about. It's a, it's a canard that people like to bring up, but there just uh, let, isn't much there. Let me there. add a couple and, and, points and, and on actually that. Can, okay. uh, can I just hold for a second? Uh, I'd like to get your reaction, Ambassador, and Representative, to, to the point that Andrew made. In Texas, in Texas, are you concerned about the notion of foreign money uh, coming in to, to your political campaigns uh, 
in the Lone Star State? I would say no. Uh, it's not been an issue. Uh, it could be an issue, but uh, it's never come before us. Representative? I don't think it's happened yet, but once again, that's why we're having this lively debate uh, with respect to dark money and the potential corrupting influence it has, uh, because once again, if 501c4s are uh, able to continue unfettered, uh, then it's going to uh, create more opportunity for bad things to happen. And David, uh, you can make your point in just a second. I'd like to just tell the audience that uh, in about five minutes we'll start taking questions. So if you do have any questions, we'll be ready and, and you guys will be able to facilitate that. Great. Uh, well, on on foreign money, there's already, there are already laws against foreign money going into U.S. elections. So if money is given to a group and it's to be used for independent expenditures, that's against the law. It's already against the law. Now, I'm not as familiar with these other laws, but there are laws, foreign agent registration laws. And I don't know too much about them, but they're, they do require that if people are advocating on behalf of a foreign entity in the United States, they have to register with, I think it's the Justice Department. And so if that money is going into a C4 for an issue ad, well, then that is something that requires re registration and reporting today. So I think that it's not as if we need, these, we need more laws and more, more things. The other point I'd like to make is a lot of times we hear about, well, we need to do things to require more disclosure and so on with C4s. He wants to have something with C4s. I don't know what the bill will look like. I don't know what the bill has looked like in the past. All I can tell you is when I look at other states' legislation, they don't write bills talking about megabucks money. They write the bills with thresholds usually as low as $500. We are currently litigating a case in Delaware where if a group spends as little as $500 Mentioning the name of a candidate in a nonpartisan voter guide, that requires registration and reporting of donors that giving as little as $9 a month going back for as long as four years. I mean, a lot of these bills are just way overbroad. Well, a question about super PACs, because super PACs right now, they, they of course do have to disclose who they're receiving their money from. Uh, one thing that they can do, though, is a super PAC and receive money from a 501c4 organization. Uh, so if you trace it back to its root, you, you don't necessarily know, even though by law, super PACs are supposed to disclose who they are. Uh, should that change? Should that not change? No, I don't think it should change because a lot of 501c4s may not have the scale um, to do their own ads. And they see a group that they agree with that's running an ad on a candidate they may support or oppose. And the most efficient way for them to act is to give the money to the group and say, here, run the ad. Now, if someone is given the C4 the money to then give to the super PAC, that's something the laws already cover because it's money being given for the independent expenditure. Do you think by and large that... So that would be disclosed. In sure. that case, if I went to you, you ran a C4, say, here, Dave, give this money for these ads, then that would require disclosure. Do you think uh, 501C4 organizations that are active politically, uh, do you think that they play by the rules? I, I can't. I don't know how many of all play by the rules. I think part of the problem is part of the problem at the federal level is some of the rules are not clear enough, and I I do think they need to work on that. Uh, Bill, what would you <clears throat> change at the federal level when it came to rules and regulations, uh, be it disclosure or, or what David was talking about? Well, I, you know, 
for me, I think the standard is if you're if you're talking about candidates, you should be disclosing, and you should be disclosing. You know, if an organization is disclosing donors. I mean, you know, the the C four versus you know uh, five twenty seven that plays in politics. That's the section of the tax code that sets up all political parties. Uh, they're regulated by the Federal Election Commission. They have to file regular reports. They have to disclose all their donors, whether the money is used for ads or used to pay salaries or used to pay uh, for polling. Um, so they disclose all their donors, and all of that is public. And then we have the second animal, the C4, uh, which is a different part of the tax code that plays by entirely different rules. And I think that if they're doing the same kinds of things that a 527 is doing in terms of trying to influence elections, they should play by the same <coughs> disclosure rules. I don't think that's... I don't think that's you know rocket science or brain surgery or anything to, to get there. I mean that seems to me to be that if you intend to influence elections, then you should be disclosing the same way a political committee does. Ambassador, same question. Uh, well, first of all, I should say that as a regulatory body, we can only deal with the laws that are on the books. And in fact, in particular, with regard to the issue we talked about earlier about how do you define a principal purpose, is it 20 percent, 25, 32.8? Uh, speaking as a former legislator, it seems to me that this is truly a legislative question that elected officials, not appointed officials, should begin to answer. Uh, however, until that point, uh, or, or even the absence of any kind of action on the part of a legislative body, uh, we who are appointed officials are going to pursue the laws that are on the books uh, which have a clear bias in favor of disclosure, and that will be the standard. And Representative Cook, why, why do you think this has become such a politicized issue, campaign finance in general? I think if we were having this conversation uh, a decade ago, uh, we'd be having a very different conversation when it came to Democrats and how they feel about this issue and Republicans, how they feel about this issue. What has changed in the past decade that, that has made this, uh, I think it's fair to say, a, a very hyper-partisan issue where there's not a whole lot of middle ground. I don't, I don't think this is a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. I think this, once again, is... But, but it seems to have become a, a Republican, at least at the federal level. Well, but I'm, I can only talk about mm -hmm. state I would level. agree with him, but for different reasons. <laughs> hey, this is good. Um, I don't see this in, in, the, state, in, the, in the state as a, a Republican or Democrat issue. I see this as, as an issue that you know, uh, you know the ambassador is right. We uh, policymakers have got to have got to address this and give some clarity. And once again, I think it's real simple. Either you believe that we should have transparency and we should guard against corruption, which uh, dark money uh, has every uh, has has historically done, and and can only become more dangerous if we don't address it. And, and, you know, and that's what we've got to do is, is address this for the benefit of the public where when you go to the polls to vote, you can make a, a well-informed decision and, and uh, you know, if folks are influencing you, you can determine you'll know who they are and why they're trying to do that and then you'll make a decision. Because once again, if you look at Utah, go back to Utah, had the people known who was behind the groups, the four, 501c4s, they would not have voted for the man that, uh, that won the office. Once they found out, they wanted him removed. So that tells you that uh, these groups can manipulate an outcome which the public wouldn't have supported if that had transparency. And once again, that's why I think we need to address this issue. Well, first of all, I think we're going to have to take our, our uh, show on the road to Salt Lake City at some point. Uh, <laughs> but before we do that, uh, just a follow-up to what you said. Uh, Governor Perry had vetoed a disclosure bill uh, not long ago. It would have, would have been, uh, what, about a year and a half ago. And uh, that did seem to be very tinged with, with partisan politics. 
Uh, do you agree that, well, it, that it was or wasn't? Not really, because uh, the it, it, you know Senate voted for it, the House overwhelmingly voted for it. It was the governor who vetoed it, and he vetoed it because of the language it had to do with with uh, 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 the, uh, the 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 union uh, participation. But once again, I think we can come up with a solution to this that will that will work, will create transparency, and, 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 and give people confidence in, in the integrity of, of the process, which I think is something we have an obligation to try to so do. So is your prediction that the next legislative session, that, that a bill uh, addressing these issues will be passed and will be signed? As long as I live and breathe and serve in the Texas House, we're absolutely going to, I'm going to be working on this issue because I think it's absolutely critical. We have a few college students up here. And, and, and we owe it to, to them and future generations to make sure that, uh, that what we're doing is, uh, is, is, is in the best interest of the state of Texas. So you do think something will be passed? I sure hope so. Okay, well. I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, if we gave a test to everybody in this room to try to comply with the bill that Governor Perry vetoed, you would not have been able to figure out how to comply with it. I guarantee you. We can do this. It's not that hard. Well, the uh, way it was written, okay. the way it was written, no one could understand it, it. You know, but down here in Texas, we'll figure it out and do a good job. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's get to audience questions. We have a microphone set up. Uh, if you just want to come and not run or uh, trip over each other to, to get there, you got two mics. Uh, and come on up and ask your question directed to all or one of uh, the members of the panel. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming out. So I feel like transparency is a huge red herring. I'm sorry, you, and, your name and where you're oh, from? Okay. Uh, my name is Alex. Um, I am a junior currently at the U University of Texas at Austin. And I, although this uh, has dominated on transparency and money, I feel like it's a huge red herring. Because even before super PACs, um, there was corrosive legislation such as Gramm-Leak-Biley, the Commodities Future Modernization Act, which prohibited regulation of derivatives, and the Patriot Act that was overwhelmingly passed on the federal level. So I feel like shouldn't the fundamental problem be the impact of big money on politics, especially with regards to uh, deranged billionaires such as Sheldon Adelson and huge companies such as Goldman Sachs? And uh, how, effective can, how effectively can this be mitigated by a robust publicly funded election that prominent voices such as Lawrence Lessig and Buddy Romer have supported? All right, pub public financing. Let, let's, Bill, uh, take a stab at that one. What, what is the, first of all, the possibility of public financing of campaigns either at the federal or the state level? And, and is that a healthy thing for, for the country? Boy, you know, I, I'm not a policy guy, so uh, as far as public finance, I, mean, I think there have been a couple of states who have been experimenting with it. Uh, I think there have been a couple of states where it's been struck down. Um, I think, it, you know, I think there is, uh, you know, and just speaking for myself, not the Sunlight Foundation, I think there is a problem with uh, public financing of elections in that, um, you know, how do you determine who's a candidate? How do you, I mean, there's a, there's a whole set of different problems with with public financing. I don't know that it's a panacea. And the other thing is that money will still find a way into the system. You can do away with, uh, you know, like I used to jokingly say my campaign finance reform is, is that uh, members of Congress or people running for office are not allowed to raise a single dime. Um, but, you know, and, and you could pass that law and there would still be ways that special interests would find to get money to them. So, 
that, so I think that it's, it's really scrutiny of the legislature, what it does. Uh, I can remember when uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the end of Glass-Steagall was passed. I remember the massive amounts of money. The thing you have to realize about something like that was that with Glass-Steagall was this was something that successive Congresses milked over and over again, talking about Glass-Steagall reform. And they did it so they could raise as much money as possible. Um, uh, you know, uh, political action committees are still hugely influential in Washington. You know, traditional PACs spent, I think, twice what super PACs spent in, uh, in 2010 with the first year of super PACs. And I think it did it again in 2012. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a good answer for you except that transparency is not a herring. It's because we know about these things, we can track the money and you can do something about it, but I think there's a citizen engagement piece that comes after the transparency that right now we don't have the best mechanisms for. Yeah, because, um, so even if you know that, say, um, Goldman Sachs or Sheldon Adelson supported XYZ policies, um, they're still going to do it. So, um, I mean, I agree that citizen engagement is definitely a whole nother topic entirely, but given the current levels of political engagement, doesn't that mean that transparency, therefore, is not an effective solution? Um, I don't know that transparency ever you know, holds itself out as the solution. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a necessary precondition to any kind of effective change, but, you know, but, that's, you know, but I don't think transparency by itself. And again, it, but having that information, knowing who's spending what, knowing what the Congress is doing, knowing what regulatory bodies are doing, uh, and being able to follow that trail, that begins to tell you what changes need to be made, what reforms need to be made. And I think that's what you, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a much more, and, and really the citizen engagement part is crucial, and sometimes that's done just through people being, I mean, you know, uh, look at Congress's approval rating right now. Uh, they know they've got a problem, and, um, you know, and I think that that, you know, that's how you get change. Andrew, is there any virtue uh, in public financing of political campaigns, and is it even, in your opinion, a possibility over the next few years, given the political realities uh, in Congress right now and throughout state houses all across the country? Well, I, I mean, it seems to me that public financing is basically orthogonal to the issue that we're discussing today. I mean, basically what we're talking about are independent expenditures, and that exists entirely independently of, of campaign financing, per se. In other words, the financing of the actual political campaigns themselves. So uh, I, I don't see as how that has anything to do with the sort of uh, disclosure uh, issues um, you know, that we've been discussing today. We're sure on time, so let's get to uh, a few more questions. Sir, please. Hi, my name is Joe Poyman. I live here in Travis County. Got a question about Texas law. Currently, trying to understand it, currently if I've got an entity called ABC Political Action Committee and I want to make a um, small number of people in that committee and they want to make a $500,000 contribution for express advocacy to support or oppose candidacies, my understanding is they're going to have to to disclaim on their ads the name of that, that entity and they're going to have to disclose who the donors are. Okay, so that's current law and I think we've had that for some 20 years. Probably worked pretty well, arguably, I, I think. If I got another entity, ABC non, 501c4 nonprofit corporation, they spend $500,000 for or against expressly advocating for, for candidates. And it's a small number of people present, and if they don't coordinate with those, both, both entities don't coordinate with the candidates. They're independent expenditures. My understanding is that under current law, Though that entity does not have to disclose who those donors are. And if that's the case, number one, is that the case? Two, is that fair and is that good policy? Because if it's a PAC, 
they have to disclose the donors. But if it's a 501c4 organization, they don't have to disclose the donors and the donors and the public and the media don't have the benefit of knowing who are funding those ads. So do I have it right? That's where it seems tailor-made for you. Thank you. Uh, we're absolutely right that a political action committee, or what the law calls a political committee, does have to disclose if it uh, spends uh, more than $500. So uh, it's a very low threshold. Uh, the current debate, the current battle lines are on all other groups. And this is where the language we discussed earlier comes into play. The language says that you, uh, in effect, become a political committee if a principal purpose of your uh, entity is political. And uh, that is uh, where the margins are, are currently drawn. Uh, I don't see any particular uh, problem in uh, roping in other organizations insofar as disclosure goes because uh, the whole idea of disclosure is not to uh, embarrass people, it's not to persecute people, it is not to stigmatize people, it is to let the voters weigh whether uh, an entity or a candidate supported by this or that group uh, is worthy of being a factor in their vote. Uh, it's uh, purely for that purpose, and that will remain for the purpose of our enforcement of the law. Well, let me say, you know, I, I think uh, your presumption uh, as a matter of law may be incorrect. And, you know, I'll grant that Texas law in some respects can be very complicated, so I wish you the best of luck in trying <laughs> to uh, understand and, and carry it out. I think it's but, really simple. But um, if, if that $500,000 is donated to the C4 for the purpose of engaging in that type of exercise, advocacy, like you were saying, that's a political contribution under Texas law, and that actually has to be disclosed. And you can go to the TEC's website right now, and, and you can see a pile of reports just like that. Well, I think um, the expenditure has to be reported, but the donors to fund that expenditure do not have to report it, and that's the issue. Well, that, that's a, again, that's actually incorrect. Um, if, 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 there's, if, if it's five, if it's five hundred, if they give the money, if they give the money to the group for the purpose of running the ads, for running express advocacy ads in support of a candidate, that's a political contribution under Texas law. Um, you know, it might be a different circumstance if you were talking about general treasury funds or something like that, but your hypothetical is that people are trying to circumvent the, the disclosure regime by working through a different form of group, and it turns out that you, you actually can't do that under Texas law. I guess there's a possibility that you could just not comply with the law, no, but, but that's a different issue. That's going well, let, 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 me, let me stop you because we're almost out of time, and I do want to get to, uh, to our final questioner here. If anyone else has a question, we might be able to squeeze one more in, but sir, please All go right. ahead. Okay, my question is for Representative. Representative Cook, um, given the... I'm sorry, your name and where are you from? My name is Adam, and I also live here in town. Great. Um, given the focus that you have stated today on transparency, I'm curious why for at least the last two meetings, to my knowledge, your committee has ignored the Texas Open Meetings Act. I think you know that uh, we have House rules, and we operate under House rules and committee. So that answers your question. I think you knew that already before you asked it. Do we have anyone else who wants to ask a question? All right, go ahead with the follow-up. Okay, so um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the implications of transparency. So I've read that... Um, and, and please keep it quick because we're going to have to get out yeah, of here in just a yeah. couple minutes. So um, I've read that corporate lobbying produces a 2,000% return. So should corporations be allowed to spend millions of dollars on such transparent conflicts of interest? David, want to take that one? 
I'm not sure I understand the question. They don't have a conflict of interest. They're trying to speak and try to get something passed through the legislature. And if something is, you know, members of Congress ultimately have to answer to the voters. And if they are seen as just delivering narrow special interest goodies, that's not something good for re-election for them. So that's the, that's the goal of the transparency part, is to give the voters the information. They can make the decisions. They are in charge. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you all for being here. Thank you to all the panelists. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Have a safe trip back. <laughs>